Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, we're mindful that you have promised that in it and by your spirit, you will work upon our hearts, that you will grow fruit here. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and reap what you've grown. Stir us up, Lord, that we might attend this with faith, knowing that you speak from these pages and even as your servant speaks. Lord, so much in us, indeed everything in us, calls for our rejection. But we praise you that in Christ we are fully accepted. For we are not in ourselves no longer, but we are alive in him. Come and minister to us for the sake of your name and for the good of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Hear from God's Word. Romans 1, beginning in verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Amen. So far the reading of God's holy and inspired word, may he add his blessing to it. Earlier in this week when I began to read and study on these three verses, I came across a comment from one author that really has stuck with me. I hadn't read it until this week, but it really applies to the whole introductory portion that we've been in so far. This author writes about these first 15 verses. Where else shall be found so much matter compressed in so little space? Where so much brevity connected with so much fullness? It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? So much brevity. doesn't really make any sense. But that's kind of the way Paul's writing comes across in so many places. It, it's him. So much fullness compressed into this rather brief introductory paragraph, if we were to take sort of these first 15 verses as one paragraph. You know, maybe you felt like it at some point, the way I felt as we've started this book, you know, saying to yourself, how can Paul have so many different thoughts in such a small little section of paper? So many things going on in these verses. I mean, he's here and he's there and he's back again and, and all around and up and down and in and out. The, the cram-packed characteristic of, of these first 15 verses will soon dissipate. I mean, you can just flip through the pages and see, right? 16 chapters. Brevity is not the theme of the letter to the Romans, okay? But these verses serve as that pivot point from this full brevity to an, an expounding of the gospel. 
you know, looking ahead a little bit, giving you a little bit of a preview, it's that reference to the gospel in verse 15 that pivots him into verses 16 and 17, the thesis for his letter, that then pivots him into verse 18 where he begins to talk about the righteousness of God, the sinfulness of mankind, and, and all the things in the gospel that flow from God's mercy and love for us. All that is to say that, that we're sort of at a turning point, we're about to be at least, that he, these verses beginning in 13 walk us into a pivot point to the main thesis of the book. He's coming to the end of his introduction and about to begin the meat of the letter. And as we look at these last couple, last few verses of, of the introduction, remember that in 8 through 12, the last time we were together, Paul opened up a little bit about his affinity for the Roman Christians. Remember, uh, look back verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He had never met them before, but he, he longed to be with them. He knew that the common faith they shared, that he had heard about back from verse 8, he knew that when they got together, there would be this mutual strengthening, a mutual encouragement and, and fellowship together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he longed to be with them. And that was one of the main reasons that he's given, at least so far, that he wanted to go and be there was for this mutual strengthening. But, but now, in verses 13 through 15, he continues that train of thought that he began back in verse 8. And, and he's going to do two things for us. First, he's going to explain why he hasn't visited yet. And then he's going to explain uh, another reason uh, that he intends to do so. And that's really how we're going to take it tonight. Verse 13, really the first half of verse 13, and then the rest of it down through 15. Two points. First, why Paul hasn't visited Rome yet. And second, why he intends to do so. And really, we may say why he must do so. Look at the beginning of 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented you know in 8 through 12 he talks about wanting to be there I long to see you and it's entirely um, understandable it's very likely that in the minds of the Roman Christians they were beginning to wonder well then where are you if you want to be here so bad why aren't you here there are ships you can get on you've been traveling around this see of you know that, that that we live on you've been around why haven't you come yet and so 13 at least begins to answer that question <clears throat> they didn't know and he had often intended to come that phrase at the beginning of verse 13 is actually one of paul's favorites i do not want you to be unaware it's a turn of uh, rather it's a figure of speech uh, that um it is expressing something, even we might even say it's emphasizing something by the negation of its opposite. That doesn't make any sense. Let me explain. Um, think about the phrase, uh, not a few, right? I may come home in, in, in the end of a day and walk in the house and Caitlin may say to me, you know, your second born has requested to go to Delta Dairy not a few times today. Now, that means she only asked once, right? No. In fact, 
the, the figure of speech that's being used here and the figure of speech that not a few is, is actually meant to emphasize. It doesn't mean that they've, they've asked, she's asked many times. She's asked very many times, right? It's meant to emphasize the opposite. And so when Paul says here, I do not want you to be unaware, what he's actually saying is, I want you to take special note of something. I want you to know for sure this thing. And what is it? I have often intended to come. You know, we can understand why he wants to emphasize that to them, right? He's spoken of his longing to be with them, the affection that he has for them as fellow believers and those who have been been exposed to this gospel that Christ has given to him to preach. We can understand that he wants to be there. He desires them. He loves them. And so he wants them to know, hey, I, I have tried to come and see you. He loves them. He wants to be there. He's had frequent purpose to go and visit. And there's the parenthetical in the middle of 13. But thus far have been prevented. Paul desired to be in Rome. Those desires led way evidently even to plans for him to go to Rome. I've often intended... But the opportunity was difficult for him to catch. There's a lesson here about the providence of God and the hindrance of our own plans. You know, what may immediately crop up into your mind is is what came into mind, Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Right, that's a classic verse on the providence of God. And let's back up just a minute. Use some Westminster logic here. God's decrees are that he has foreordained everything that's ever going to happen. And his providence is his bringing that all to pass. His providence is his seeing to the, the movement of everything to its intended end. And sometimes providence, let me back up, pardon me. Always, God's providence is what's, what's moving things along. And so the author of Proverbs 16 can say, yeah, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. He's not saying there's anything wrong with us making plans, and certainly we should for all sorts of manner of things in our lives. But the Lord is the one who ultimately determines what's going to happen, what's going to come to pass. It's all going to be for his glory and for the good of his people. Think about... Um, Think about 2 Samuel chapter 7. David desired to build a temple for the Lord. But the Lord told him not to. Here, I'll just read a couple verses from the beginning of 2 Samuel 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king, this is David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart. For the Lord is with you. David looked around and he thought, you know what? We've got peace and prosperity in the kingdom. And I live in this wonderful palace that that I have been allowed to build by the Lord. And he still lives in the tent that was designed in the wilderness. Surely it's time for me to build something more substantial for him, right? David's desire is good. His plan is righteous and pure. He desires to honor the Lord 
And Nathan the prophet doesn't know any better in this particular moment. He doesn't see anything wrong with that. He says, go and do it. It's a good plan. There's nothing wrong with David's plan. But just a verse later, after Nathan says, go do it, it says, and the Lord came to Nathan and said, go talk to David. You go, go, and, go and pull David back a little bit. And in, in the words that the Lord gave to Nathan to speak to David, he says this, I will give you, speaking to David, rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And I'll just pause there for a minute. There's a whole lot here, right? David wants to build God a house and God says, no, I'm going to establish your house. And all of this is pointing to Jesus. But what we want to see here is what he says in verse 13. He speaking about David's son. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You know, we know how history played out. David didn't build the temple. Solomon built the temple, right? His son was, was brought to the throne and he built the temple. David's plan was good and right. But in God's providence and his purposes, he pulled him back. Not dissimilar to what's going on here with Paul. I, I have often intended to come to you but have thus far been prevented. You can scour the rest of the pages of Romans. You won't find the answer to why he couldn't come. You can't really figure it out. There are several options that exist out there, but we don't really know the answer to why he didn't come, except we can say that in God's providence, it was not time. Robert Haldane, commentator on Romans, says this, the times... And the ways of God's providence are often unknown to us. And therefore, our desires and our designs in His service ought always to be cherished in submission to His divine wisdom. What's He saying? Well, He's saying it's not bad for you to have plans. It's not bad for us to, to look ahead and, and to, to think of things that we'd like to do in service to God and in, in living our lives before His face in this world. But we should always hold those things loosely. Always hold them in submission to God's divine will, which we know not how it will trace out. You know, how often do you feel, Christian, like your plans get disrupted? And I'm even talking about mundane things here too, right? Every single day, my day doesn't go the way I planned. Uh, we can all pretty much say that, can't we? It's, it's not that I have a day that I remember where everything went exactly the way I had blocked it on my calendar. And I'm one of those weird guys, I block everything on my calendar. But wonderful feature of our phones and our technology is that you can pick up that little block and move it to where it actually happened, right? Because somebody called me or somebody walked into my office or somebody was crying before I left the house or, or maybe even much more difficult things happen, right? Our days don't go according to plan. We must hold them loosely. We can intend, but we, we live in submission to the divine wisdom of our God. You know, plans that you make to go out of town on vacation, right, and, and get some rest and relaxation. How often have those plans been disrupted? Where you come back more stressed out than when you left? Because you, I don't know, because I couldn't get the rest I planned to get, right? We're such fickle, strange creatures, aren't we? 
our plans are disrupted and mixed up all the time. You know, what about the plans that you have for your family? How often do your kids wind up actually doing what you think they're going to do or saying what you hope that they will say? Bigger picture things than that. I mean, we, we thought we were going to have children just, a, you know, a few years into our marriage. We were married a decade before the Lord blessed us with children, and we thought we were infertile until that moment. You never know what God's providence will bring. Everything in our life, isn't it always just upended by His plans and His purposes? And it's not a bad thing that they're upended. Most of the time, it's better for us to go God's way than our way. Little tongue-in-cheek there, it's always better for us to go God's way than our way. What about your plans for your own sanctification? Not as fast as I want it to be. I don't hate my sin as much as I want to. I haven't left it as quickly as I intended to. The upset of our plans isn't always bad. John Calvin says it like this. He says, we, we learn that the Lord frequently upsets the purposes of his saints in order to humble them. And by such humiliation, to teach them to regard his providence, that they may rely on it. He says, it is indeed the presumption of impiety to pass by God and without him to determine on things to come as though they were in our own power. That's what Paul recognizes. Paul recognizes that it wasn't in his power to do whatever he saw fit. Again, not a comment on the morality of his intentions. But, but he simply knew that he intended and it was prevented. And this is life as a Christian. This is life under the hand of God for whoever you are. And it's, it's the, the, the presumption of impiety for us to forget about God when we make our plans. Calvin goes on later in that same comment, and he, he draws a distinction between um, those who deal well with hindrances in their lives and those who deal poorly with hindrances in their lives. Don't identify yourself too quickly because he separates them between believers and unbelievers. Listen. Thus, Calvin says, the hindrances of the godly and of the unbelieving differ. And so, so the question, before I read the rest of his statement, the question in your mind here is, is, how do you respond to the hindrances that are placed in your life, to the upending of your plans? What's your response when things happen that you didn't expect to happen and you have to do something different? He says, the unbelieving perceive only that they are hindered when they are restrained by the strong hand of the Lord so as not to be able to move. They just, they just think they can't do what they wanted to do. He says, but the godly are satisfied with a hindrance that arises from some approved reason. Nor do they allow themselves to attempt anything beyond their duty or contrary to edification. Listen to that. The godly are satisfied with an hindrance that arises from some approved reason. What's that approved reason? What's the approved reason for all the hindrances that come into our life is that God is with us and will never forsake us, and everything is moving in a good direction, regardless of what our plans fail to come to pass. 
So find comfort in that. And in Paul's even short, brief comment there, I've often intended, but have thus far been prevented. That's the way we live our Christian life. I intend, but I've been prevented. And we keep pressing on. We keep pressing on. We trust the Lord in all those things in your day-to-day that never goes the way you plan. You've got to move the blocks around. The, the, the year-to-year and, right, and, and the, the family planning and, and the, the expectations and, and the sanctification. In that, you trust the Lord. You pray down the power. You're, you're dutiful in what He's given you. And you trust that He will bring sanctification to bear in your life one day, someday, unto glory. We trust Him. And we walk with Him. We do not fear. Paul intends to go, but he's thus far been prevented. But I want you to see that he kind of leaves that off now, right? Because he's writing the letter. He's not there. I've intended to come, but I've been prevented. He's going to start to write much of what he wants to speak to them. But just before he gets there in verse 16, he reflects a little bit more on the reason that he wants to be there. The reason that he, he desires to go to Rome. You know, the reason that he gave originally was, was not, not as if this cancels it out, but, but one of the reasons he's given us for why he wants to go to Rome is back in 11 and 12, which we already referenced, right? He wants to go for that mutual strengthening. But here he gives, and I know this sounds strange, but he, he gives... A, a, a broader purpose and yet one that is much more specific. It's a bigger purpose with a very specific aim. And he breaks it down for us here in the middle of 13 through the end of 15 with, with two sort of purpose statements followed by a concluding declaration. Let's just walk through these verses and let's see. One, Paul says there in the middle of 13, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I've intended to come. In order that I may reap some harvest among you. Literally, it says there, in order that I may um, have some fruit among you. And the idea of fruit should bring up all sorts of things into your mind about Passages from the Gospels, because Jesus loved to talk about fruit. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What's he saying here? I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. You should have some kind of harvest to reap. You can think about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. All the ones that are escaping my mind right now. I, some, once in a while, Tim will start listing the, the fruits of the Spirit. And I try to keep up. And I, I can't. I can't keep up. Um, talking about Scripture memory with a session a, a couple months ago. Maybe there's a verse I should put on my list. You can think about um, the way that Jesus talks about diseased and healthy trees and the way the way a diseased tree produces diseased fruit and, and a healthy tree produces healthy ripe fruit 
You can go back then to Psalm 1 and realize that a healthy tree only grows as it's rooted in the Word of God. The the, the language of fruit is all over the Scriptures. And that when we're rooted in God, we produce good fruit in our lives. And Paul says, this is is why I want to come. I want to come so that I can reap some harvest among you. That might make you think of Matthew chapter 9. When Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Have you thought much about what that verse is really saying? The harvest is plentiful. What does that mean? That there's stuff to be brought in. That there's fruit to be reaped. He says, I need people to go out and do what Paul's talking about. Reap some harvest among the people who have heard the gospel and the people that need to hear the gospel. Go out, Paul's saying. I need need to go out and let the gospel do its work and so we can reap some fruit. He's saying, one, I desire fruit among you. We're going to come back to that, so hold the thought, right? One, I desire some fruit among you. And two... I am obligated to you and all men. This is what he says in verse 14. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so while most of the Bible is not about us, all of us are in that verse somewhere, okay? You can decide which one you are if you want. Look at the two parallel phrases. They, they actually come first in the original. So, so the, the, the verse would actually read, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, I am obligated. I'm indebted. They're meant to encapsulate sort of a, an entirety, aren't they? Greeks and, and barbarians are speaking about the nations. Wise and foolish are speaking about all the different kinds of people in all of the nations. Paul's, Paul's saying, I'm indebted to everybody in the whole world. Anybody that I can get a hearing with, I'm indebted to them. I, I'm obligated to go to them. A little bit strange, maybe. The word there, obligated is a good translation. It, it may mean more literally, it means indebted or to be a debtor. Paul's saying that he's indebted to, to all people, all mankind. You know, what does Paul owe anybody? I mean, he hadn't borrowed money from any of them. Not from everybody, at least. He can't mean that. John Stott has a really nice way of explaining the idea. He writes this. There are two possible ways of getting into debt. The first, he says, is to borrow money from someone. The second is to be given money for someone by a third party. He says, for example, if I were to borrow $1,000 from you, I would be in your debt until I paid it back. Equally, if a friend of yours were to hand me $1,000 to give you, I would be in your debt until I handed it over. Because in the former case, I would have got myself into debt by borrowing. In the latter, it is your friend who has put me into your debt by entrusting me with $1,000 for you. Paul hasn't gotten into debt by borrowing something from everybody in the world. Paul's been put into debt to everyone in the whole world because he's been given the gospel by the Lord. Because he's been given something that he must give to everyone else. Right? It's back up in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
right? Paul was given the gospel and was so indebted to everyone, obligated to everyone to go and proclaim it. Oh, just take note there for a minute. <laughs> that the church is not responsible to proclaim the gospel for the sake of those who hear it. The church is responsible to proclaim the gospel for the sake of the one who has given it. It's for him. It's for his glory and his renown. Yes, it is good for us and it is good for those who hear and respond in faith. Yes. But we do it. We proclaim it. We're here right now doing this for his glory and his honor because this is what he's commanded. Paul's ministry is not, as one man wrote, inspired by those to whom he was sent, but rather is inspired by his abiding sense of the divine obligation which rested upon him. This is why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. Not because he loved people so much, and he did, but because he recognized the one from whom the gospel came and the great indebtedness that he has to God to proclaim it. So, so one, I, I desire fruit among you, Paul says, and two, I'm, I'm obligated to you and to all people. So, three, verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. This is Paul's ministry. Gospel proclamation. It's one word in the Greek. It literally could be translated to gospel. The preaching of the gospel. This is Paul's main thing. I am eager to, to, to gospel to you who are in Rome. He's obligated to it, you see. Good news must be shared. That's Paul's perspective. He's obligated to it. But, but also by the accompanying ministry of the Holy Spirit, this preaching that he's obligated to produces fruit in the lives of his hearers, which he desires to go and reap. You know, the big question sort of looming all of, over, <clears throat> excuse me, looming all over this is how? How is it that, that there's fruit produced in the lives of those Romans and in the lives of those to whom Paul will preach and Presumably to all those in Rome who will hear this gospel when he arrives to proclaim it. How is the preaching of the gospel a fruitful endeavor? At the very least, because we need to be reminded of it. It's fruitful in that it shakes us loose from the grip of the world and the grip of our sin. To be reminded again and again, day in and day out and week by week, that God is holy and righteous and good and that He has made us for Himself. And even though we have transgressed against Him, even though there is nothing in us that pleads our acceptance, in fact, that everything in us pleads our rejection from Him, even though we deserve death and worse because of what we've done against our King and Creator, He sent His Son to bear the penalty for our sin and to live a life of righteousness and count it to us so that we might come back to God. This gospel good news is what we need to be reminded of regularly. And it is this gospel good news that bears fruit in the life of God's people. In the first place, by bringing people from death to life. Dead ground and the gospel plants seeds that sprout up life. 
This is the fruit of the gospel. And the fruit of the gospel is also seen when you speak kindly to your neighbor. And when you catechize your children. And when you walk with God in all the ways that he's given to us. This is the fruit of the gospel as we remember it regularly. This is why Paul wants to preach it. Because apart from the preaching of the good news of Jesus, there is no fruit. You see, there's a connection between it all. I want to come and see fruit. And I'm obligated to all these people to proclaim to them the gospel I've been given. And so I want to come and preach so that fruit can be reaped. So that those who do not know of the good news can hear it. Two points of application as we close. First. If it's so significant to Paul that the gospel be preached, it is so important for us to sit under the ministry of it and to bring forth the fruit of it in our lives. Here's from Larger Catechism uh, 160. 160. It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. That means there's something to do before the worship service, just if you're paying attention. They are to examine what they hear by the Scriptures. They're to receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God. They're to meditate and confer of it. That means talk about it. They're to hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Right, this, is, this is the Westminster Divines looking at the Scriptures and saying, what do the Scriptures tell us we must do as we sit under the preaching of the good news? We must treasure it and love it. We must cling to it. We must, we must prepare for it and pray for it. We must... Seek the fruit of it in our lives as we go from the, from the preaching of it every single time. We, we look for fruit. We meditate upon it. And I know all of these things, you know, we could explode all of these words and give you practical lists. But it's important that you think about this and that you pray and ask the Lord to give you practical steps for yourself. What is it to bring forth the fruit of the word in your lives? It is to, to study it and to think about it. And trust the Holy Spirit to bring it to bear. So sit under the preaching of the gospel and look for fruit. And secondly, if, if, if the preaching of the word is so significant to Paul as an apostle, if, if there is such an obligation to him that he proclaims it, I would posit to you that it is important for you to pray for preachers. And, and I mean this in two senses current preachers, so you should pray for me and Tim. You have to love self-serving sermons. I mean, this is fantastic. Get to tell you all to pray for me. No, but really, really. I really believe this. The scriptures prove it out. One of the best things that you can do for your own spiritual edification is to pray for your preachers because this is one of the main ways that the Lord will work upon your heart. This right now 
pray for your preachers, but also, and we don't say it enough, pray for future preachers. Pray, hey, how about this? Pray for the Lord to raise up preachers from among our own children. Maybe there's a, a young man or a young boy sitting in this room right now who will one day stand in a pulpit and proclaim the glories of our King. Maybe. Maybe there is a young man sitting in here who will one day preach a sermon under which someone will be converted. Death to life. There certainly won't be if we don't pray for them to be raised up. Pray that God would raise up those from among our very ranks that would go out and proclaim the excellencies of our God who's called us. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest. Sit under the preaching, pray for the preaching. The gospel is so good. I'd encourage you to go and read Romans this week all the way through and get a great grand picture of it. Paul intended to go be with them so that he might preach to them the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. We are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Aren't we glad that we've been handed that gospel? May the Lord stir our hearts to trust it more and more. Amen.